If you're able, stand in honor of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in his tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this morning. We pray that you would illuminate your word in our hearts, in our minds. God, we pray for Ryan as he comes up here to preach, Lord, that you would use his words to impress on our heart your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> How are we doing today? I hope you guys are doing well. Happy Mother's Day to those of you moms in the room. It's a great, great day. This uh, is not going to be a Proverbs 31 Mother's Day sermon, as you can tell. Uh, it's going to be a little different, um, but nevertheless applicable to each and every one of us who, are, who have a family or are in a family, which is all of us. Um, because we're going to see some of the, the joy and brokenness of living in a family uh, together in this sinful world, but also um, trusting in the miraculous grace of God. So we've been, we've been journeying through the book of Genesis together. Uh, it's been a great, great journey. Uh, today, where we, where we end up is, is really the, the, kind of the, the second generation of descendants of the promise, uh, the birth of Jacob and Esau from Isaac and Rebecca, and, and really the lens that I want us to look through today uh, that I think will be most helpful for us is this lens of God's sovereignty. When I say the word sovereignty, what comes to mind for you? Maybe nothing, or maybe a lot of things. Maybe you just finished watching The Crown on Netflix. I don't know. I don't know what comes to mind for you, uh, but here's what I know about God's word is that God wants us to think through a monarchical lens when we look at him. And the reason I know this is because 1 Timothy chapter 6 says this, that Jesus, he is the blessed 
our blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God wants us to think about his son as the King of king and the Lord of lords. Um, but it's a little work for us in the West to do that, isn't it? Because we think uh, of a monarchical reign as a very negative thing by, by virtue of the country that we live in, right? Um, and so what we got to do is a little up, upstream work uh, to, 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 to redeem this term, to redeem this lens so that God's word can be uh, fed to us this morning. Um, so here's, here's our tension with sovereignty, all right? We struggle with the idea of a sovereign God because we are so deeply deceived by the illusion of our own control. So what happens in our theology is that we carry this into how we see God. And so sovereignty typically works out like this. It's some type of consolation prize at best. And what I mean by that is this. Is some circumstance in your life doesn't go how you envisioned it in your own little sovereign world. And so you are forced to settle with this idea of God's sovereignty that sounds like this. Well, I'm disappointed, but at least God's sovereign. I mean, how... How disappointed does that sound about God's character and nature, right? But that, that is where we find ourselves so often because we are so disillusioned with our own ability to control our lives. What I want to propose to you today is, a, is another way to view the sovereignty of God, where we would, like C.H. Spurgeon, see the sovereignty of God like a pillow that we lay our head on at night. What, is, what does your pillow do? Some of, you, some of you sleep with a lot of pillows like me. I have four every night. I kid you not. You can ask Megan. It's wild. Um, and it's awkward to ask the hotel for two more pillows. You know, it's just weird. But, you know, the pillow does what? It supports your rest. God's sovereignty, church, is intended to be a doctrine of comfort to support your rest in him. That's what God's sovereignty is intended to be in your life. So here's our big idea today. God's sovereignty is our only source of comfort in the midst of crisis and conflict. So let's define God's sovereignty, or at least try to anyway. God's sovereignty, there's this guy named R.C. Sproul who's a pastor in our denomination that was just kind of a pioneer. And the thing I love about R.C. Sproul is he was able to take really complex ideas and make them simple for country boys like me. Uh, and so here's how, in one of his works, here's how he described and defined the sovereignty of God. He said this, and it really talks about the control of God and every, you know, molecule of his creation. He says, if God is not sovereign or in control, then God is not God. If there is any element or being of, of the universe that is outside of his authority, then he no longer is God overall. In other words, sovereignty belongs to deity. Sovereignty is a natural attribute of the creator. And this is what I love right here. God owns what he makes and he rules what he owns. That's what God's sovereignty is. And when we live in a time and in a place where we live in a, in a particular time where that, that doctrine is probably about as countercultural as anything we could imagine right now, uh, it's an uphill climb to be able to see through the lens of sovereignty as a comfort for us today. This is the frame that I want to invite you to think through as we look at the narrative of Jacob and Esau's birth today, okay? Uh, everybody get it? Sovereignty, that's what we're looking at, okay? 
First thing is this. We're going to look at uh, in two points with a couple subpoints. The first thing is this, is that we discover the kind and sovereign plan of God through the labor of prayer. Notice how I talk about prayer in that point. Prayer is work, church. If prayer isn't work for us, we're probably not doing it right. Prayer is work for us. It is a labor for us to tap in to the heart of the creator of the universe. All right, let's, let me remind you of just what's going on here. And what I want you to look at in these four verses that I'm going to read is how prayer connects uh, Jacob, I'm sorry, Isaac and Rebekah to the heart and to the plan of God, okay? Listen for it. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. Remember the journey of prayer for Isaac to come on the scene. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah. That's a lot older than, than most people got married. Um, and he's the daughter of Bethuel, the, the Aramean uh, Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife. Because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me, Lord? So she went to inquire of the Lord, went to pray. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. In other words, there's more going on than just normal childbirth here, okay? Two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. Okay, so, so here we see in this narrative right here uh, that we're exploring, it's set over the course of 20 years. That's why the passage starts with Isaac being 20, I'm sorry, uh, 40, and it ends with him being 60. 20 years of time that are going on here. Um, and uh, this is important because if we miss this little detail, uh, we miss a, a part of the complexity of Jacob and, uh, I'm sorry, Isaac and Rebecca's life together. So, and one of the things we notice is that there is an unusual amount of barrenness in the chosen family, isn't there? There's a lot of barrenness. And, and especially here on Mother's Day, I just want to, I just want to um, bring this to light that there's a lot of barrenness even in this room. There's a lot of infertility in the first service and the second service, people that have struggled with infertility. And I want you to know that uh, that is not foreign in God's kingdom, that God is even in control of that. And so I hope that you'll be comforted today, if that's you, uh, with the sovereign hand of God, that he hears your prayers, even though if the timeline of having children or not having children isn't what you'd expected. It doesn't mean that God doesn't hear you. I just want you to know that. These guys prayed for 20 years. Think about this. 240 months of praying. That's a long, long time. And God chose to work through Isaac's prayer. Isn't that what God does a lot of times? He chooses to work through our prayer. And what does it do to our faith when we see God work through our prayer? It strengthens our faith, doesn't it? God is pleased to cooperate and to, and to uh, really bring his will to come to pass through the life of your prayer. He's pleased to bring souls to life from the dead. He's, he's pleased to overcome besetting sins through prayer. He's pleased to do miraculous things like bringing life from a barren womb through prayer. Ian Bounds says this about prayer. He says this, I think Christians fail so often 
to get answers to their prayers because they do not wait long enough on God. Spiritual work is taxing work, and men are loath to do it. Praying, true praying, costs an outlay of serious attention and of time, which flesh and blood do not relish. Church, is there anything unfinished in your life right now? Is there anything that you've been petitioning the Lord for? See, Rebecca, as they had these kids, this miracle, she knew that something was different. She hadn't been pregnant before, as far as we know, but there's something that was different about this pregnancy with these twins. And the way that the Hebrew describes what's happening here is that there's violence happening in her womb. Almost like, it's almost like debilitating violence that's happening inside the womb. It's not just like a kick here and there. It's, it's violent. And so she petitions the Lord. She, she follows her husband's lead, who had been praying to the Lord for these kids. And then there's this issue that's happening as she has these kids in her womb. And so she does the same thing they'd done for the last 20 years, which was what? Pray to the Lord. She sought the Lord, and this miraculous thing happened. God spoke to her. I don't know how many people in here that God has spoke to, but that's a, he speaks to us through his word. We know that. But he speaks an oracle to her. She asks, what's going on? Why is this happening to me? Why me? And he speaks to her, and he, he tells her what's happening, that there's more going on in your womb than just a couple babies, that actually what's going to come out of your family is two divided nations, one that will be God's chosen instrument to bring salvation to the world, and another that will be diametrically opposed to it. What tough news to hear, right? What tough news to hear of all of that going on in your womb. But, but there's even more to that that we see here. God is showing us two distinct themes that we've already seen in the Bible and we will continue to see in the Bible as we study it. Um, and it's this. One, one of them is about life in its essence, like genuine, eternal abundant life, and the other is about the nature of God's kingdom and how he works his kingdom out in the world. So the first one about life is this, is that only through him does anyone experience real abundant life. So the physical life that's brought about through prayer, it mirrors the barren condition of this world, that there are many people that we walk among that have no life inside of them. They are barren. They might look like they're alive, but they're dead. Their body's full of bones. They don't have a new heart and a new mind able to worship God. And we're reminded of our own salvation that the only way we have abundant life, even though we walk this earth, is if God gives us the gift of a new heart, right? Because our old heart was made of stone and it hated God. But our new hearts love God and we turn toward God. And that in and of itself is a gift. That's how God brings about his people, as he gives them new hearts. It only comes through him. The second thing we see is this, is that the kingdom of God is upside down from the ways of this world. God uses weak people to bring about his purposes in this world. Now, we don't understand as much of this today, but it was, an, it was a tremendous honor to be a firstborn son in these times. The honor of being a firstborn son was maybe equivalent to being like a prince in a kingdom, right? Um, as a prince, as long as you live, it's yours. The only thing you got to do is stay alive, right? To inherit, to inherit the, the inheritance and, and everything that comes from that. And no one can take away your birthright. No one can change the order of your birth. 
And the oracle says that even though this is what worldly conventional wisdom says, this is how that the family uh, you know, should expand, God does things differently than the world church. Instead, God says, I'm going to use the weaker, younger son, not the burly, furball man Esau, right? He says, I'm going to use the mama's boy instead of the hunter. And why does God work like that? Think about all of the ways that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God. In in the Sermon on the Mount, he he presents as, as he begins to preach this juxtaposition of kingdom values, right? Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, right? He he presents all of these juxtapositions that seem like things that are weak and things that we would avoid that are really cues about how he brings his kingdom about in this world. Jesus will say, uh, you know, when when the... um, In John 13, when Jesus is around the table with his disciples, when he's instituting the Lord's Supper, what does he bend down and do? He washes his disciples' feet, he humbles himself, and he does this, and he says to his disciples, now you, and go, you go and do likewise, or something like that, right? You should be foot washers in the world, not seeking places of elevation, but seeking the place of servants in the world. That's how the kingdom advances. Over and over and over again, we're reminded of how the kingdom grows and expands. God does things differently than the world. He uses this younger highly manipulative, highly deceptive, younger mama's boy to carry out his plan. There's hope for guys like me, right? I'm a mama's boy. When you fast forward to Jesus, you see him doing the same thing. And the, 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 Think about how Jesus, the people who get Jesus' kingdom and the people who extend Jesus' kingdom, are they not the outcast, overlooked, untouchable sinners that advance his kingdom? Absolutely they are. The proud, put-together guys that have all of the right credentials are never the guys that extend the kingdom of Jesus. They are the people that are diametrically opposed to it. The Lord is setting this plan into motion, even in Genesis 25 that we're looking at today, by choosing Jacob to be the, 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 the promised seed. I want to give you one question and one takeaway before we move on to the, kind of the bulk of the sermon here, and it's this. Are you really weak enough to experience the life of God in this world? Do you need God's grace enough? Or is God's grace kind of this ancillary kind of bolt-on thing to your life that you can use when you get in a pinch? Or is it everything to you? Because the way of the kingdom and the way that God chooses the people that he chooses, I mean, Jacob is a bad dude. The, re- the thing that God wants to show the world is only by the grace of God is this possible. That's the thing God wants to prove through your life too. Did you know that? Only by the sheer grace of God, not the might of man. Second thing is this, God works through prayer. Prayer is the only way we can connect the physical and spiritual evidence of the kingdom that we're longing for that comes from this invisible God through human agents, right? That's what we're seeking. God wants to, he wants to evidence his kingdom through the way that we pray to him. And and sometimes that means long suffering in prayer like the persistent widow as we pursue him and pray toward him. God has set up this world so that we discover God's will and experience God's sovereign plan through the labor of prayer. Is prayer a labor for you? 
Or is it just a song at dinner? Is prayer the thing that you connect to most deeply when you've got the most question marks, or is Google? It's a real question to consider. I think most of us would probably feel some degree of shame if we put a time clock on the amount of time that we actually pray in a day. But if, G- if Jesus could not discover and live out the will of God without prayer, why do we think we can? Prayer matters, friends. And it's a labor for us, okay? Second thing we see from this narrative is this. The only difference between believers and unbelievers is the sovereign gift of grace. The way that we're kind of conditioned to think about this, uh, how, how things happen in the world, is, is uh, that, you know, when, when something good seems to happen in life, there must have been a set of skills, circumstances, or opportunities that someone had in order to achieve those results. That's the way that we think about it. It's kind of a quid pro quo approach to life. You know, one thing leads to another, and that's the way it happens. Unfortunately, when we look back, we know that's never the case. It never happens like that, that there's always God's grace in it. But but we're, we're tempted to think about God's grace and God's plan in the very same way. That because they're a good person or because they did this and that, it led to these things. But here's my question. What happens when no one in the story is good and God's good plan comes from it? Have you ever considered that? What happens when no one's good? Think about this crew we've got here in Genesis 25, all right? They're all so messed up. Mom and dad have favorite kids. One guy trades in his family for a bowl of stew, and the other guy has the same nickname as the devil. The deceiver, Jacob, right? Devil. Think about this crew we've got here. I mean, you look at this and you're like, and we were blessed because of this family? Some of you relate a little more fully to it, but we won't go there today. Um, Let me remind you just kind of, all the things that happen here that are so broken, and then I just want to make a few points from it as we wrap up. Genesis 25, 24 through 34. Let's read these 10 verses here. Uh, so when her days to give birth were completed, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, and he was basically a hairball, and they called his name Esau, which was based on his appearance. And afterwards, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. I, I don't, there's something here, I told the first service, I didn't study this this week, but you, somebody should go study this. There's something about the heel here, all right? Because what happened in Genesis chapter 3? There was a promise, wasn't there? Pablo knows what that promise was. The promise was what? The promise was that there would be a descendant that came from Adam and Eve that would, uh, that's heel would be struck, but he would ultimately crush the head of the serpent, right? There's something about the heel. Somebody look it up and share it with me. That'd be great. Anyway, uh, let's keep going. <laughs> Um, when the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter. He was a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in the tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew for I am exhausted. Jacob said, listen to, this is crazy, all right? So look at how Esau kind of utters these incomplete sentences and then listen to how decisive, certain, and clear Jacob's questions and answers are, okay? Listen, so he says, I'm exhausted. Give me some of the the stew. And what does Jacob said? 
sell me your birthright now. So he swore to him, sold his birthright to Jacob. And Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. All right, let's look at all the sinners here. Isaac and Rebekah are sinful. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. (laughs) Isaac leads really poorly. After praying his boys into existence and God cooperating with the prayer of Isaac through his spirit and this miraculous intervention, he then picks a favorite. It's really a temptation that every parent faces, connecting more fully with one of our own children and finding our identity in how they live their lives. Now, Rebecca, she simply responds to Isaac's lead. She realizes that he favors Esau because he's a man's man. He's not inside playing video games. He's outside hunting, right? He's bringing home red meat and for stew. And, you know, he seems like the guy that would carry on the family name. And Isaac really connects with that. The only problem was, wasn't God's plan. And so we see, we see them kind of, kind of let off the gas of their lives of faith. They, they kind of take the foot off the pedal. And they begin to get selfish with their kids. And, um, and, and if you have children, more than one child in particular, uh, you have the same temptation. Now, if you're a kid in here, you're like, what? They like one of them more than me? And then you're like, no, I know they do. Uh, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Your parents love you. But there is a temptation. There's a temptation to find your identity in your children. And there's a, t- there's a, t- there's a temptation to try to live vicariously through your children. Some of the characteristics that some of your kids are more like you or more like your spouse, and it's easier to connect and, and share life, especially as they get older. But parents, we have to fight against that tendency. Even with this family, especially, there was so much at stake. Isaac and Rebecca heard a word directly from God, and it was up to them to carry on the, the promised seed that would ultimately lead to Jesus coming and blessing our lives. And they are over there seeking self-interest interested, uh, things. And so, uh, you know, Isaac is just using his son to follow the wisdom of the world and to meet his own needs. He loved Esau. He was so proud to talk about Esau. Man, look at him, man. He's, he killed this giant buffalo when he was 10, you know. I could just hear him talking about his Son, so proud of him. And then Rebecca responding, and oh, Esau's a really great cook, you know? He loves to read, whatever your stereotype would be. And it's just driving this wedge in the family. It's like two different families are existing. And guess what? The boys know it, and they respond to it. The sins of parents tend to show up in the sins of the kids, don't they? This, this isn't an excuse This isn't letting our kids off the hook for when they sin or letting you off the hook for your parents' sin. But it's it's biblically true for one. Generational sins are a factor in the Bible. They are a a factor in Jacob's life. What will Jacob do just a few chapters on down the road? Will he do the same thing his dad did? He absolutely will. Who's his favorite son? Joseph. What will happen because he has a favorite son? Well, the other brothers would sell him into slavery. It'll be an absolute disaster for the rest of Genesis. But God will be faithful. There is a tendency that we have 
as parents to do that. How does your sin show up in your parenting? Where do you see your sins in the life of your children, and how can you lead with an awareness of that? Or, if you're not a parent, or you are a parent, flip it around. How do your parents' sins show up in your life? How do the things, the, the proclivities and brokenness of their life show up in your life? What does it look like to seek God's face, to make you new, and to conform you to the image of Jesus in those spaces? Because here's what we know. Those tendencies will come. They will show up in our lives. They will, come, they will show up in our, in our children's lives. And, and the, the reality is we have to be aware of our own sinful nature. We have to be in touch with it. Far too often we are surprised by our sin. And we're like, oh, where did that come from? Right? What's it look like to be aware and to seek the Lord intentionally with your sin? All right. Jacob and Esau. These boys are sinful too. All right, two things. Esau cannot resist instant gratification. Especially as Americans who live during this time, we are susceptible to this very sin, probably more than any other generation at any other time. Let that sit with you for a second. I, I think you'd be hard-pressed to push back on that. It has never been easier than to pursue a life of instant gratification, Think about all of the things in your life that feed the idol of instant gratification. That little thing that's buzzing in your pocket right now, you know? Um, that, that fast food drive through that Uber Eats guy that shows up, right? Um, those inappropriate images that show up on a screen. Everything lends itself to instant gratification, which means that it is an uphill climb for the church. Um... As much as I'd like to kid around with you and kind of joke about these two jokers, we've all got our own bowl of stew. And the question is, do you know what it is? We've, we've all got the thing in our life that we'd be willing to trade our identity in Christ for, just for a little stew. Your bowl of stew is whatever blinds you to the consequences of disobedience. It's whatever you can easily shrug off and justify, and that you're willing to lie to defend. Do you know what that is for you? Are you aware of that? Are you aware that you have a bowl of stew? Are you aware of that? Esau says, look, I'm exhausted, I'm hungry, and he tells this lie. I'm about to die. That joker wasn't about to die. He was, he was close to the tent. This was not a justifiable excuse for him. But what happens when, when, we, when we're seeking instant gratification is that we deceive ourselves. We lie to ourselves. Deceptions all over the whole narrative. Esau was not away from food. He just wanted it on demand. And it was so important to him that he was willing to trade everything for it. And he says, I, I can't take it anymore. I know it's wrong. And I'll just figure out how to fix it later. How many times do we do that? We get in that moment where we know, you know, you know where the scripture says that no temptation has overcome man to such a degree that God will not, and I'm paraphrasing, provide a way of escape, right? You know the scripture that says that? And you know in your sin, when, you are, when, you're, at, when you're about ready to commit it and you see the way of escape and you're like, ah, nobody will know. I'm just going to keep going. I'll figure it out later. That, that's, that's what he's talking about here. And, and I'm, I'm going to... 
This, this sermon took, when I was developing it, it took a completely different angle that will make sense in a second. But open your Bible up to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 15 and 16. And this is why we sent out the kind of the caveat to the message that we were going to lean into some topics that are around sexual immorality because they are so linked to this, all right? Um, and I know you're thinking, what does Stu have to do with sex, you know? You're like that Tina Turner song, what's Stu got to do? Hey, did you know she's 81, by the way? 81, Tina Turner. I know, I know some of you are going to Google that. Don't do that right now. Um, here's what Hebrews 12, 15, and 16 says. Brandon's still going. I love it. <laughs> See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. And as we look back and we look at Genesis 25, we're like, there was nothing about sexual immorality in there. And I'm thinking, I mean, the writer Hebrews, he like, did he read Genesis? I mean, come on. Um, but here's what we see. It makes a lot more sense when we think about it, doesn't it? Sexual immorality is all about instant gratification. I'm going to address a few things here. It may make you uncomfortable, um, but I feel uh, compelled to do so. Um, sexual immorality is so pervasive for us today um, that we can't even see it anymore. Our, our consciences are so seared that we don't even know when it's in front of us anymore. It's just a part of who we are, part of doing life. Premarital sex. What's premarital sex about? It's about partaking in the benefits of marriage without the commitment of marriage. What are we doing? We're trading our birthright, our identity in Christ and his promises and his ways for a bowl of stew. And the lie that we believe is that I'll figure it out when I get later. It won't really, I won't, there won't really be any consequences. I'm talking to young people in particular here. There are always consequences. And they will stay with you for a while. It's, and I'm not saying that there's not forgiveness and that God doesn't lead through that. Clearly he does. We are children of God because God worked through this situation. But there are consequences, and they will, sin always promises more than it can deliver, and it costs you more than it, than, it, than, it, um, than, it, than it ever lets you know, right? It always costs more. And so if you're in a relationship that is leading toward that, where's the way of escape for you today? If you decide to get into a relationship that can open you up to that susceptibility, what will your plan of escape be? How will the community of God inform your holiness in your relationships? The next one we see is this, is extramarital sex. This is an affair um, or a relationship with something like pornography that's outside of the bounds of your marriage. It's about trading our birthright and responsibility to serve our spouse through intimacy for a bowl of stew. You know, lustful thoughts or activities towards someone that we are not covenantally bound to in marriage. That's what extramarital um, uh, uh, immorality is. And, and here, here's the thing. If statistics are right, more than 50% of men in this room have a relationship with pornography. And not far behind it are the women in the room. This is such a huge issue that nobody's laughing now, right? You've seen it take down your family. Some of us, honestly, in the room are hiding it right now. 
And this is an even smaller room, and I, I, I hate to make you feel uncomfortable, but I would hate it worse to not make you feel uncomfortable. Everybody has to address it. And it is, and typically an affair, extramarital relationship, is linked to pornography. Sometimes it starts there. And for us to not seek God's face in this would be a tragedy. So my question to you is, if you're there today, is this, what if Jesus could set you free from the bondage that you're in right now? What if he could set you free from those wandering thoughts that you have, that relationship with the screen that you have that you know is wrong? What if Jesus could come in, forgive you of your sins, and set you free to such a degree where you could say, I was lost, but now I'm found. I was in the darkness, but now I'm in the light. Because that's the power of the gospel in the life of the church. We don't have to, to, to live into the world's desires for instant gratification. We don't have to take the bait, church. The sermon on sexual immorality used to stop here. It can't anymore. It can't stop anymore. We need to talk about homosexual sexual immorality. The Bible mentions it this way. We could say it, we could define it this way uh, in, the, in, the, in the 21st century church in America. It's an embrace of the LGBTQ plus movement from a convictional sexuality of your own. And, and, and when we do that, it's about allowing the desires of the flesh to overcome the design of God. Now, now saying this is one thing. Empathizing with those who struggle is a completely different thing. But I, I'm pleased to tell you this, that, we, that I get to pastor a church where multiple people in our congregation struggle with the same-sex uh, attraction and the implications of that that are walking to some degree of freedom right now because the power of the gospel is that good. But it is an uphill climb right now to let God recenter and redefine what holiness looks like in our relationship to sexual intimacy. Because the world is going to fill in all the gaps for us if we don't let the scriptures. And, and there are a few implications of this, right? Because the, the, the huge cultural issue that surrounds us is that our world has concluded that the gospel has no power and that the desires of the flesh trump the design of God. That's what the world has concluded for your marriage and for your children. I just want you to know that. So the uphill climb, here's what it looks like for us. If, if, um, if you're a Christian that struggles with same-sex attraction or sexual curiosity outside of the design of God, you have to confess earlier and more often than you ever have in your life because the church is the only one that's going to help you put the brakes on that. Everyone else is going to, they're going to promote and incentivize your fleshly desires. Even though in your heart of hearts, you know you don't want it. Everyone else is going to incentivize it. We've got entire TV show, basically channels, that are promoting that type of an agenda in your heart, leading you from God. The church must play a role in your purity and in your holiness. You've got to find an entrusted group of people to journey with in that. Because only the church has the spirit of God in them and is going to encourage you toward godliness and not sexual immorality. I want to talk to parents for a second. Um, this hits home with me. This means if you have children, you have to talk with them about this earlier than you think that you do. Because the world is going to fill in the gaps for them 
And whoever you hear something first from seems to take a little more weight and effect. It's much easier to give a frame to think through for our children than to try to correct something that's already built into them. So many of us are so uncomfortable talking about this with our children. And I just want to tell you this. They're going to hear it from somebody else. Why not hear it from the ones that care for their souls? The ones that have been entrusted to disciple them. Do whatever it takes for you to be equipped to help your children think about a Genesis 1 and 2 sexuality, a gender identity, and a sexuality in marriage. If you don't do that, the world will define them. And, and, and I think the church has the power to redeem the design of God in sexuality. To say that, yes, God created uh, different, distinct, yet complementary genders of male and female who were designed to get married to one another and experience sexual intimacy with one another. That that's part of the plan and holiness of God. But instead, we feel like it's some dirty thing that we can't talk about. The church has the power to redeem the message of sexuality, and it starts with our children. We just need to be wise, bold, gracious, and unashamed of God's design. And that's going to start with you, parents. And we as a church want to help come alongside of you however we can in that discussion, but we just can't stay away from it. We have to have the conversation earlier, earlier than you learned about it for sure, much earlier, because it's all around us. Lastly, I'll just say this, grace. There is so much judgment from the church around living convictionally with biblical ideas around sexuality. And it is because we are so uncomfortable sharing grace with people that sin differently than us. Amen? It makes us so uncomfortable. You know what Jesus did? When Jesus was around people that sinned, which was everybody, right? Jesus moved toward them, not from them. When you think about the people that struggle in these particular ways or they've committed certain uh, acts of sexual immorality, do you move toward them in love or away from them in judgment? The power of the gospel, it doesn't mean that you endorse the sin, but it means you don't punish people with distance. Jesus is always moving near. He's always moving more and more near to sinners. Now, by God's grace, we must do this as winsomely as possible with the outside world who is desperately trying and attempting to make sense of their identity in a, sex, in a, in a secular, sex-driven fashion while not bending the Bible's standards of holiness. We got to understand that the world is just trying to find their birthright, to find their identity. We're all lost. We're lost in different ways. Church, where are the people, when the prodigals return home from the sexual revolution, is New City Church a place they can come to? That's a real question, isn't it? If we believe God's going to draw hearts back that are lost, do we live in such a way where the prodigals can come back here? That's the challenge for us in the way that we live. All right, secondly, uh, if that, that wasn't controversial enough, we're going to talk about election now. <laughs> J- Jacob is deceptively wicked, yet sovereignly chosen. So, and, and by the way, let me say this. I, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this point today because I'm going to preach another sermon on it next week. It's going to be kind of a two-part sermon here. But I just want to touch on this right here. Um, why? They're, bo- they're both sinners, right? Why does God choose to pass on the promise through one sinner and not the other? 
right? Why, why does he do this? Electing grace is mysterious and it's somehow comforting to us. The first time that I read this passage of scripture that I'm about to read to you, which is commentary on this, I wanted to rip the page out of my Bible. And you know why I wanted to do it? Because I thought about salvation from this kind of a neutral perspective, which says this, you know, why, um, why doesn't God save everyone? But really, my frame was all wrong. The, the, the frame, when you come from a biblical point of view, is this, why would God save anyone? Why wouldn't he just do a Genesis 6 kind of flood thing again? That makes the most sense, Right? It's because he's gracious. And so as we think about those that follow Jesus, we must not approach it uh, with our neutralistic kind of mindset about, uh, about humanity. We're all sinful and deserve God's wrath to be poured out on our lives. But God chooses to lift some of us out of our deadness and give us new hearts. And, our, and, and while that is not comfortable for me to say, it is the truth is all over the Bible. And what it means for us is that it doesn't lead us to not be evangelistic as Christians. In fact, we know that faith only comes from hearing and hearing from the word of the Lord. It makes us more evangelistic. We know only God can raise someone from the dead. And it doesn't lead us to despair about our loved ones and our friends who don't seem to be walking with the Lord. But it motivates us. And the other thing it does is it gives us a a comforting pillow for our own walk. Because you can't lose something that's a gift. Something you didn't earn, you can't lose it. That's your salvation, Christian. If you didn't earn it, you can't lose it. So that means that it doesn't matter how bad your life gets. If you belong to God, he's going to bring you home. He's always going to, it may be painful, but he's going to bring you home. And that is the comfort that we have in knowing God. Listen to this Romans 9 passage here. It's rough. Listen to it. It can be a comfort for us as the church. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the offspring. In other words, it's, it's not about anything we can do, but only about God giving us faith and his promise. And not only so, and then he gives some commentary about this Genesis 25 passage, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. He's saying, it's not because Esau was a bad dude that he wasn't chosen. That's what he's saying here. He's saying there was something that happened before they did anything good or bad where God chose one and chose to pass over the other one. That's absolutely mysterious, but it's absolutely God's word. He goes on to say this, not because of works, but because of him who calls. It's his purpose. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Wow. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means, Paul says. For he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. So then it depends not on human will, or exertion, but on the God who has mercy. Here's the deal. Both of these brothers were wicked. Neither one of them deserved to be saved. But because God is in heaven and he spoke the world into existence, he decides who he's going to save. We don't know who that is. It's not like we walk around and look, lift up people's shirt tails and look for a little election check mark. And, oh, I'll share the gospel with him. It's not how it works. But we live in such a way where we're faithful Because we know it's only by God's mercy that we follow Jesus. 
We live that way. It changes how we live when you know that it's only by God's mercy. Now, Esau wasn't this guy that was beating down God's door asking for forgiveness. No, Hebrews 12, 17 goes on to say this. Because here's the deal. We, we, um, as, 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 as image bearers of God, we always get what we truly want, what we truly desire. God does not bend our conscience or will. He just changes the hearts of those that are his. Hebrews 12, 17 says this, for you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. We could misinterpret this passage and say that Esau was beating down God's doors, begging to receive the blessing of eternal life. He wasn't. He was seeking the blessing of the inheritance. He was sorry to the degree that he didn't get as many of the world's goods that he would have had. And it, it confronts us. It confronts us because we have to ask ourselves, what does our repentance look like? What, does it, what is it really about? Are we just trying to get, you know, a get-out-of-hell-free card? Or do we really love Jesus? Do we really want to serve him with our whole lives? Because God will not be tricked in this. The blessing was Esau's bowl of stew, and no amount of tears can save anyone, only heartfelt repentance. See, church, God's sovereignty is a comfort to believers and a terror to unbelievers. It's a comfort to believers because it doesn't matter how bad life gets, you can't lose what you haven't earned. And as we turn to this table today, uh, I want you to know that Jesus' grace is sufficient for the sins of the world. It really is. But it is efficient for those who belong to God. And our hearts today, may they be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus because we know that we don't deserve God's mercy. And he is so kind. He is so kind to show it to us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for, um, for the gift of mercy, Lord. Uh, Lord, this passage is one of those that, um, that if we're honest, we try to squirm away from. We, we, would, we would rather say that, that God looked into the future and saw that Esau was going to be a bad dude, and so he didn't choose him. But the reality is, is that you are mysterious. You are, you are God in heaven, and we are here on earth. And so uh, we're called to let our words be few, Lord. May we not be like the friends of Job that try to explain away the mystery. Because we weren't there when you set the foundations of the earth, Lord. We weren't there when you spoke light into existence. We were not there when you formed Adam out of the dust. And so, Father, we let our words be few. And it humbles us to know that it is only by the kind, loving, merciful hand of you who gave us Jesus Christ so that we can be saved forever, that we live. God, it makes your love just run so much deeper in our hearts. And so, Father, deepen the way that we see your mercy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.